Well, September 11th, 2001. When I say that date, those of you that are in your 30s or older, you, you can remember what you were doing, where you were, the emotions that sprang up when you remember what happened on that now infamous date in, the, in our nation's history. That's the day when Al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked four commercial airliners and flew two of them into the twin towers of the World Trade Center in New York City, one of them into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and another one would have gone to another target, but brave men aboard that plane uh, took it back, but it crashed in Pennsylvania. Over 3,000 lives were lost that day. You know, in the hours and days that followed, it brought an unprecedented swell of national unity. American flags began to, to be hung everywhere, on the outside of buildings, houses, cars. Around here, a lot of pickup trucks. There were a lot of, a lot of flag, flagpoles stuck in the back of a pickup truck, uh, waving proudly. And I remember myself, that the, the emotion of that, there was a, a, a pride, a unity, a unifying. When you saw that flag, it stood for something. And we were a hurting nation. And that hurt and that unity brought this nation together. We even, in the churches, even saw an increase in attendance as people sought to comfort themselves find relief from their fears of what could happen next it was a very unifying time it didn't matter what part of america you lived in it didn't matter your race your gender your social status your political affiliation we were americans and we were united in this one cause desiring justice to be served for those lives that had been lost. Well, as time went by after the first anniversary, you know, fewer flags were flying in the back of pickup trucks. Uh, flags were coming down off the buildings. It seemed like that passion that, of that unity was beginning to fade. You know, the common divisions in politics and among the races and ethnic groups slowly began to resurface. Why did that occur? Why couldn't we have stayed in that place of unity? What is it about the human heart that, that can be so full of commitment and passion and then turn and be equally passionate in disunity? Well, it's sin. It's, it's the sin that every person on the planet has. You know, for a moment we can put aside that selfish, sinful desire and unite around a common cause. And that's really what happened in our country on that date and the weeks that followed. But inevitably that unifying effect diminishes and that selfish nature comes back. It's because that unity is not based in something that lasts. As we come to our text today, we're talking about unity in the church. 
And so I want to ask the question, when you survey the landscape of the church in America, do you see unity? Or do you say it's fractured and divided? What would you say is the basis for unity among Christians? And how important is unity to God? How important is unity to the message of the gospel? Well, to answer these questions, we're going to look to God's word to see what he has declared about the importance of unity among God, God's chosen people. So please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 133. You can find Psalm 133 on page 299 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And while you're turning there, I want to set the context for Psalm 133. This psalm falls toward the end of a group of 15 psalms called the Songs of Ascent. Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 make up the Psalms of Ascent. Well, God instructed the nation of Israel to observe three annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem in which they were to offer sacrifices in the temple. Deuteronomy 16 says, Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, And at the Feast of Booths, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God he has given you. So these 15 psalms were sung by the people as they made their way to Jerusalem and as they arrived at the temple to offer their sacrifices to the Lord. Thus the name Songs of Ascent, because in a very literal sense... They were geographically ascending up to Jerusalem that has a little higher elevation than the rest of the nation. These songs provided a means of teaching the next generation about God. The whole family would go on these annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem. For example, the story of Jesus in Luke 2 when he traveled with his family. It says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So we see they traveled in groups. And so it is likely these songs were sung by the groups of travelers as they made their way to Jerusalem and as they gathered at the temple. Well, King David is credited as the author of Psalm 133 as well as uh, three other psalms in this group, Psalm 122, Psalm 124, and Psalm 131. Solomon is listed as the author of Psalm 127. And the rest of the Psalms in this group have unknown authors. And just a quick overview of these songs of ascent reveals that some are songs of lament, such as Psalm 130. It says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. 
Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. But others give you more of a sense of why they would be sung upon the occasion of the nation coming together at these appointed feast times. Psalm 121 gives that sense of going up. It says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 122 expresses the joy of going to these national gatherings in unity to offer praise and thanksgiving to God. It says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And Psalm 127 teaches our dependence upon God's provision. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those that labor, those that build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. These songs help to prepare the people to offer sacrifices to God in a humble and thankful heart. Psalm 131 says, O Lord, I lift, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. In Psalm 128, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. I'd encourage you to read those 15 Psalms. Look at them in light of this context of going up before the Lord to offer praise and thanksgiving to him. Meditate on those. Well, let's look now at our focal text for today, Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. I have one main point for us to take from this text. And then toward the end we'll have some application points that we'll give. But our main point is unity in God's church is both precious in God's sight and provided by God for the divine purpose of manifesting His glory to the world. I'll say that one more time. Unity in God's church is both precious in God's sight and provided by God for the divine purpose of manifesting His glory to the world. So what is it that David is seeing that inspires him to write this psalm? Well, Scripture does not tell us the particular occasion upon which he wrote this psalm. It could have been his attendance at one of these national feasts in which the masses of people were gathered in the steps of the temple and out in the courtyard singing these songs in unity. The inspiring scene of thousands of people all singing one voice would certainly be a sight to behold. And perhaps for David it's especially sweet to his soul to behold unity because he had seen the opposite of that in his life. He appreciated that sweetness of unity. 
Maybe in his mind he reflected on the betrayal led by his very own son, Absalom, and some of his own trusted counselors. It was a terrible time in which the nation was divided. Maybe he reflects on the time before he was established as king, when King Saul pursued him to kill him. But now, in stark contrast to those memories of turmoil and war and betrayal and division, is this beautiful scene of unity of a nation before God. It's often true in our own lives that we don't truly appreciate what we have till it's taken away. Whatever the occasion that inspired David to write this psalm, we're blessed to have these instructive words for us to value the preciousness of unity among God's people. So I want you to see that first word. He says, behold. It's an emphatic word calling us to attention, to sit up and take notice of something that's special, something that's important. We might, we might say that phrase, this is a sight to behold. And we say that phrase when, when we are witnessing something that's good, it's pleasant to experience it, but it's uncommon. So he declares that what it is we are to behold is unity. It's unity among brothers. Unity Unity must have a basis. It must have a common point upon which it's built. And in this case, in Psalm 133, the word brothers indicates this unity is the familial heritage of the chosen people of God. It's the descendants of Abraham, which became the nation of Israel. This unity is exclusive. It is only for God's chosen people. And this unity is described as both good and pleasant. And David could have chosen one or the other adjectives to describe it. He could have easily said, Behold how good it is when brothers dwell in unity. That would be a true and sufficient statement for it. Or he could have said, Behold how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That also would be a true statement. But he says this unity... This unity among brothers is both good and pleasant. Why is that significant? Well, he's describing something that has its origin in God. Our God is good. All that he does is good. Therefore, this unity that comes from God is good. This unity is something that ought to be. It should exist among the people of God because it manifests the character of God and his character is good the intensifier in this description of unity is that it is also pleasant and pleasant connotes a blessing something that we would should want something we would take delight in it's something we would desire or we would choose it if it were a choice So we see there in verse 1, there is this God-given unity among God's people that manifests God's good character and is pleasant. It's a blessing for God's people to experience it. Well, then in verses 2 and 3, he provides two metaphors to describe this unity, this good and pleasant unity. 
So let's look at the first one in verse 2. He says, It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now, I had some of these guys want me to do a demo here, but I'm not going to pour oil on my head. I do have a beard. I didn't grow it out to the length that Aaron's beard probably was. No demo today. We're going to have to rely upon some word picture to picture this and see what's going on. But what an unusual thing to describe unity, right? I mean, that's not what I think of. I don't think of pouring oil on the head and letting it run down on the beard uh, to describe unity. So why would David choose this? Well, let's explore that. In historical context, the Israelites had been delivered out of slavery from Egypt by God's power through the God-appointed leadership of Moses and Aaron. The book of Exodus chronicles all this in great detail. In Exodus 20, God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses to establish right relationship to God and to one another. And then God provided further instruction on how the people would be in communion with him. In chapter 26, God established the plans for the construction of the tabernacle. That would be the place where the high priest would go to make sacrifice to God for the sins of the people. The high priest was the mediator between God and man. Upon completion of the tabernacle in Exodus 29, God instructs Moses to consecrate Aaron as high priest and his sons for the priesthood to serve with him. It says in Exodus 29, You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Now David didn't personally witness this scene. He, he lived 300, some 300 years later. But the significance of it was such that this consecration ceremony of Aaron and his sons and that vivid description of it was passed down from generation to generation. And so David, having heard this description many times probably, pictures it in his mind as if he was there. David also had firsthand experience with anointing oil himself. In 1 Samuel 16, God directed Samuel to anoint David as the next king to succeed King Saul. Perhaps that plays into his choosing this metaphor to think about unity. Well, the anointing oil was not just an ordinary flask of, of olive oil. But it was a very rather specific mix of oils and spices. I want to read these instructions that God gave to Moses 
for this anointing oil so that you understand the significance of it. In Exodus 30, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is, 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person. And you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy. And it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. So this is serious. This is special. That adds some depth to this picture, doesn't it? This oil is sacred. It's holy. It's fragrant. And it has a very specific God-ordained purpose. To consecrate unto God the priest that would mediate between God and his chosen people. Notice that Aaron and his sons could not serve the Lord until they were consecrated. Set apart and made holy by this ceremony of the anointing oil. So let's remember David is describing unity. Unity then he's saying, is like this sacred, holy, fragrant oil being poured out on the head of Aaron. And this fragrant aroma spreads to all nearby. And it's not just a little spot of oil. It's being poured out so that it flows. And it keeps flowing down from his head to his beard to his priestly robes. So this pouring out could be described as abundant, lavish, excessive. Isn't that so descriptive of God's love and mercy for us? He has lavishly loved us through our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. This flowing down then says something to us about the origin of unity among God's people. It comes from God down to his people. Just as God chose Aaron and set him apart as holy to be the high priest who would mediate between God and the people, so God has chosen us and has poured out his spirit upon us to set us apart as holy. 
Brothers and sisters, we do not create unity. God creates unity by pouring out His Spirit on us to make us alive in Him. We, the church, Christians, have been consecrated unto God for service to Him through His church. He has poured out His Spirit within us to empower us for service to Him, to proclaim His excellencies. Peter wrote of this, 1 Peter 2, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. As that consecrating oil ran down, the fragrance of it spread to all those around. Likewise, Christians are to be to the world the fragrance of Christ. 2 Corinthians 2 says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. We are united to Christ and to the Father through the outpouring of His Spirit. The perfect unity of the Trinity. This is why verse 2 of Psalm 133 is a fitting metaphor of unity in God's people. Well, let's look now at the second one. Verse 3 of Psalm 133. David says, Unity, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So now David is describing something more familiar to the people. It's likely that they may have seen Mount Hermon themselves. But I doubt few of us have. Perhaps you've had the opportunity to travel that part of the world and see for yourself Mount Hermon, but most likely not. So let me give you some description of this mountain Mount Hermon is in a mountain cluster constituting the southern end of the anti-Lebanon mountain range. Its summit straddles the border between present-day Syria and Lebanon. Its highest peak is 9,232 feet above sea level. At the time of, in David's lifetime, Mount Hermon was actually within the borders of Israel. But in today's present geography of Israel, it's just, just beyond the northern tip of Israel now. Well, because of its height, it, it gathers a great deal of precipitation in what is normally a very dry area of the world. Uh, Mount Hermon has seasonal winter and spring snowfalls, which cover all three of its peaks for the, the majority of the year. So the meltwater from that snowpack comes down on the western and southern sides and it goes into rock channels that feed springs that at, at the base of the mountain which form streams and rivers which eventually create the Jordan River which flows all the way down through Israel through Jerusalem. Well that snowpack because of the, the geography that snowpack creates a dense cloud cover around the mountain. And that dense cloud cover 
creates a condensate, a very heavy dew. Thus the words that David used to describe the dew of Hermon. It's like almost kind of like a, a, not quite like a rainforest, but a heavy dew that surrounds this mountain. And as the winds move, it, that dew could spread away from the mountain. But it creates this very fertile, lush plant life down in the valleys below Mount Hermon. That's what David is seeing. That's what he's describing. The mountains of Zion in this verse are referring to Jerusalem that's built atop Mount Zion. So in this metaphor, we once again have a description of something coming from the higher to the lower. This coming down. Mount Zion in comparison is about 2,500 feet. So you have the much higher elevation of Mount Hermon down to Mount Zion. So this life-giving water descends from this snow-capped peaks of Mount Hermon and runs all the way down to Mount Zion via the Jordan River. So this good and pleasant unity among God's people is like this life-giving, refreshing, flowing water that comes down from the heights and provides sustenance for all that are within its flow. It is here, the mountains of Zion, that the Lord has commanded the blessing of life forevermore. It's on these mountains that the way of eternal life was made possible for us through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The unity of God's people being compared to this life-giving water is really brought together in the words of Christ in his encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. Recall these wonderful words to her. He said, everyone who drinks of this water, referring to the well by which they were standing, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So we can see that Psalm 133 is proclaiming a unity among God's chosen people to be good and pleasant. It's holy and sacred as it comes down from God upon His people to consecrate us and provide in us eternal life. Well, as we read in Exodus, Aaron was consecrated as the first high priest. And when we see such things in the Old Testament, it's good biblical theology to ask how that person or that event has its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And so I want to invite you to turn to your Bibles to John 17. Now Matt read this entire chapter earlier. We're not going to reread the entire chapter. But we're going to look at some key verses as it relates to unity and how Jesus prayed for unity. Jesus is our great high priest who sits at the right hand of the Father, forever making intercession for us. All the high priests before Christ, starting with Aaron, had to be made holy by that cleansing ceremony with that sacred anointing oil. But Jesus needs no such anointing. He is holy because He is God. 
He was born holy and pure through the virgin birth and remained such throughout his earthly life. And instead of offering for sin the necessary blood sacrifice of animals like the other high priests had to do, Jesus offered himself. It is by his own blood that the justified wrath of God has been paid in full once and for all. Well, in his final hours before his betrayal and crucifixion, he prayed for unity among the disciples and unity in the church. So let's look at verses 1 through 5. Jesus is praying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is declaring to the Father he's accomplished the Father's will. That's the fulfillment of that last part of Psalm 133, verse 3. There, the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Eternal life is only in Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Unity is precious in the Father's sight and provided by the Father. Why? Because of the perfect unity of the Father and the Son. That's what we see here in John 17. Jesus prayed, glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. The Father is glorified in the Son. There's perfect love and perfect unity between them. Down in verse 10 it says, All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Here Jesus is praying for the disciples in this same mindset of perfect unity. Unity is precious in the Father's sight because it is established in the Son in whom He is well pleased. Jesus is infinitely loved by the Father. And since unity is based in His infinitely loved Son, unity in the church is precious to the Father. Jesus understood this and therefore He prayed for us, the church, the true church, in verses 20 through 23. Read with me. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, the word of the apostles, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, 
that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus is declaring the basis for unity. I and them and you and me. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this critical point. We are one in Christ Jesus. There's no other foundation upon which unity can be built in the church. And because unity is in Christ, it's unshakable. What Jesus prayed for in his high priestly prayer, the Father has granted. This church, this local church, CCBC, is part of the global, universal church that stretches across this planet. God is granting that prayer in every true, gospel-preaching, Christ-centered church. That's the evidence that this prayer is being fulfilled. God is building his church. Blake read earlier in the call to worship from Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. And verses 4 through 6 are fundamental to this doctrine of unity of the church. I'll read it again, verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Unity in the church manifests the wisdom and power of God. And Jesus prayed that our unity in him would reveal to the world the love of God. Verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. This kind of unity, this brotherly love is confounding to the world. They don't get it. They can't understand it. 1 Corinthians 1 says, for since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. When we think about unity, if we're not careful, we're going to think uniformity. Our default definition may be to think that we all have to look the same, think the same way, act the same. Now, that's what the military wants. The military wears uniforms so that they all look the same. Soldiers go to basic training so that every soldier is trained to think and act in the same way. But that's not the picture of unity in the church. That's why in Psalm 133, David was overwhelmed with the sight of a diverse group of people assembled in one place in community with each other, giving praise and sacrifice to God. In reality, the power and wisdom of God 
is more brightly manifest, the more diverse we are. Because only God could bring together such diversity. And in that diversity, we find a gospel-revealing community. All the things that so sharply divide people in the world, race, ethnicity, gender, age, social status, economic status, the gospel of Christ breaks down those walls of division. Ephesians 2 explains this so beautifully. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Pastor and author Tim Challies said this of diversity. The core of our identity and the one that unites us all is Jesus Christ. All those other distinctions still exist and still matter. God has a glorious purpose in two genders, in many races, in myriad ethnicities. God's purpose is not to destroy distinction, but to destroy division. It's not to promote uniformity, but to promote unity. Why does community matter? Because it shows off how good God is. It is both good and pleasant, and it's something to behold. A gospel-revealing community is one that only our relationship to Christ could explain. That's the only reason we would spend time together. There are no other obvious commonalities, just Christ. Too often the temptation within the church is to build community around the gospel and something else. We can put a label on it called Gospel Plus Community. Gospel Plus Community is based on similarity, but not the power of the gospel. We're naturally inclined toward that which is comfortable, and similarity is comfortable, isn't it? But we should expect the gospel to bring about diversity. A Gospel Plus Community reveals doubt and impatience to wait upon the power of the gospel to do just that. So brothers and sisters, pray for CCBC to be a more diverse, gospel-revealing community so that the manifold wisdom of God is brightly displayed in and through us. Well, since unity is found in Christ and is the work of God through Christ... Do we have a role in regard to unity in the church? What's our role? Up to now, we've talked about God provides it all. It's unity's created in Christ. Well, the answer to that is yes, we do play a role. We play an important role, not in creating unity, 
but in maintaining unity. We're to guard it and protect it. Paul urged the Ephesian church to do this in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We become one by the Spirit of God poured out in our hearts to which we respond with repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we cannot create that unity. It's the work of God. But we certainly should be eager to maintain the unity that He establishes. We're to protect it. And we're not to be lackadaisical about it. It's not some sentimental wish. We've been brought into, by the grace of God, a unity that is divine and sacred and holy. It's good and pleasant. So if we can begin to grasp the infinite value of this unity in Christ, then the outflow, the response of our hearts will be an eagerness, a zeal, a spiritual energy to want to guard and protect that unity. When we think about protecting unity in its most basic sense, we should think in terms of protecting what God has put together. Jesus said this of, of the marriage covenant in Matthew 19. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to, the, to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Likewise, what God puts together, such as the local church, we should be eager to protect against division and disunity. Division or disunity becomes sinful when it divides what God has said should not be divided. Let me say that again. Division or disunity becomes sinful when it divides what God has said in His Word should not be divided. We need to be unity maintenance people. I'm an engineer. I work in a manufacturing plant. And we have a staff, a maintenance staff. And their charge is to do planned preventive maintenance on our equipment for the purpose of keeping that equipment running because if that equipment breaks down our production lines go down well inevitably I've seen that over the years unplanned downtime it disrupts the flow of the plant we can't get our products out the door so neglecting that routine maintenance inevitably leads to that leads to breakdowns but when we do the planned preventive maintenance, the equipment keeps running, the production lines flow, and we're able to meet our profitability by getting our products out the door. Well, likewise, in the church, we're to plan. We're to be intentional in maintaining what God has put together. We must be eager to maintain this good and pleasant unity for the divine purpose of manifesting God's glory in his church to the world around us. 
So I want to equip you. I want to give you three tools to put in your unity maintenance toolbox. I'm, I'm recruiting you all. You're all on the maintenance staff. All right? Every member of CCBC is on the unity maintenance staff. Three tools. The gospel, doctrine, which is our statement of faith, and commitment. That's our church covenant. The gospel, doctrine, which is our statement of faith, and commitment, our church covenant. Let's look at them in a little more detail and a few practical tips for each. Every member of this church has participated in a membership interview. And as you know, in that interview, Pastor Blake asked you for two things. To share your personal testimony of how you came to faith in Christ Jesus. And to share the gospel. To pretend that he's an unbeliever and to share the gospel in three minutes or less. Now, does he do that just to make you nervous? Does he do that to embarrass you or to critique you? No, he doesn't. You don't, do you? Okay. The purpose of that is to confirm in your own words that you understand what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be joined with this local church. It begins with the gospel. Well, the gospel means good news. And since there's good news, by implication, there must be some bad news, right? God's word tells us that every person has sinned against God. And the issue with that sin is that it separates us from God. Romans 6.23 says the wages, the payment for that sin is death. And it's eternal death. It's separation from God. And separation from God in a place of eternal torment called hell. Now you may have heard that God is love. You may perceive that God is love and you think, well, there's no way a God of love can send people to hell. But God is holy and he's just and he must judge that sin. And it seems like a hopeless situation for us. But here's the good news. Jesus Christ. God didn't just leave us in this hopeless condition. He provided the way for us to be reconciled to him. That wall of separation to be torn down. And it's through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. You see, God the Father sent His Son to this earth to take on flesh. Through the miraculous virgin birth, He came into this world sinless. And He lived the life that we cannot live. That righteous life, sinless. But Jesus did it. He was tempted every way you and I are. But yet He remained perfect. And then... He willingly laid down his life through death on a cross, becoming the perfect once and for all sacrifice for sins for all that would believe in him. And he didn't just die on that cross. He was buried, but he rose again on the third day. And because Jesus lives, we live in him. 
we have life in him. That, friends, is the good news of the gospel. And that is what we all must know. We've got to keep preaching that to ourselves. So the first tool in maintaining unity in God's church is to guard with all diligence the true gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no other way to be made right with God. Scripture says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's amazing. And we've got to know that and guard it. And we, we need to keep preaching this gospel to ourselves every day. Be amazed by that every day. Another tip I would give you is get with some friends and practice sharing the gospel. Just like that membership interview, sharpen one another with how you present the gospel so that you, when you have the opportunities, you're ready to give the reason for the hope that's in you. The better we know the gospel, the more eager we'll be to share it. And also, be intentional to share the gospel with unbelievers in your circle of influence. Think about family, your neighbors, co-workers. Think of ways to have meaningful conversations in which you can share the gospel. So our first tool is the gospel. The next tool in your unity maintenance toolbox is doctrine. The tool to use here is our statement of faith. The CCBC statement of faith is a document of summary statements of biblical doctrine. It's what we believe God's word commands and instructs for living in a manner worthy of this calling. In this topic of doctrine, as it relates to protecting unity in the church, well, this is one we can really get in some deep water on if we're not charitable toward one another we can actually tear down unity rather than maintain it see we're not all in the same place of understanding of biblical doctrines sanctification is a process we're all learning and we can all be at many different levels of understanding in that process our understanding can be influenced by poor teaching in the past and by experiences in life in general as well as church life but it's God's word that must guide our understanding and when it comes to essential doctrines to the gospel God's word is explicitly clear and on these essential doctrines we must be unanimous to protect that unity we must be unanimous in our agreement in those doctrines that pertain to the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone there's no room for dissension on that. But there are some doctrines that the Scripture simply does not provide enough evidence for us to make a distinctive conclusion. These are important doctrines because every word of God is important. But these are not essential for salvation. These are the types of doctrines that theologians come to different conclusions based on the study of the whole canon of Scripture. So because of that, I want to give you some categories to help you think about how to process matters of doctrine on which we might have reason to see some things differently 
And I, w- I want to offer these only to help in discerning when it's okay to have some edifying discussion on a doctrine. And maybe if we don't come to the same conclusion. But we want to be very careful not to label a discussion as division or disunity. Because that's not what it is. So let me give you these categories, and I think that will help sort out what I'm saying here. These categories are taken from an article by Dr. Al Mohler titled, A Call for Theological Triage and Christian Maturity. Triage means to sort. So we're going to put in order what's most important. Well, first order doctrines are are those that are essential to the gospel itself. So some examples here would be the Trinity, the virgin birth, the full deity and humanity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, justification by faith, the authority of Scripture. On these, we must be unanimous in our agreement. They are essential. Second order doctrines are urgent for the health and practice of the church to such a degree that they can tend to cause the separation at the local level, church, local church level or denomination. So some examples here would be baptism. Pado-baptist, which would be infant baptism, like our Presbyterian brothers. Or credo-baptist, which is what we are. Another example would be the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Theologians label that the cessation versus continuation of whether though you agree with those that those miraculous gifts still exist or they discontinued back in the apostolic age. So these are areas that lead to some denominational boundaries. There's differences of what the scripture says. But they're not essential to salvation. That's why we can Say these are brothers in Christ. We may not agree on these things, but we agree on that which is essential to salvation in Christ. And then third order doctrines are important to Christian theology, but are not important enough to be a basis of separation. In other words, it wouldn't be a denominational separation. So some examples here would be the timing of the millennial kingdom. Theologians put some labels on that. It would be amillennialist, premillennialist, postmillennialist. They, you know, we talk about it long enough. We may add some other millennialist to it. But it. So that's just the timing of the millennial kingdom. The scripture, you know, you can study it. We can all kind of look at it, and we might come to some different conclusions on that. And it's okay because it's not essential to salvation. Another example would be the age of the earth. Again, the label here is old earth creationism versus a young earth creationism. We could study that and maybe have different viewpoints on that. Well, these would be areas to, con- to continue to study and discuss, but we should be charitable toward one another if after studying God's word you come to different conclusions. So I hope that those categories are helpful to you in this matter of how to handle doctrine. A few more points 
to encourage you in this. I want to encourage you to keep learning. Commit to keep learning. No one's going to have a 100% grasp and understanding of all those doctrinal statements in our statement of faith. Keep studying God's word about the various doctrines. It was the Apostle Paul's prayer for the Colossian and Ephesian churches. He prayed this, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Let's pray that for ourselves. Pray what Paul prayed right there for CCBC. And we learned last week from 2 Timothy 4 that the Apostle Paul, who was about to be martyred, called for the books and parchments. The dude wanted to keep studying. Wow. Now, if he can do that in a prison cell, shouldn't we be willing and committed to keep studying and keep learning in our total freedom? I think so. Guard your heart against the prideful view that you've arrived about a doctrine. Keep learning. A practical way to grow in your knowledge is to study the statement of faith. Get with another member or a small group of members. Help each other learn. Have some healthy discussions on these doctrines. Read and discuss good books recommended by the elders that exposit all the biblical texts on a particular doctrine. Keep learning. And also I would say be quick to reach out to the elders when you can't come to a gain uh, a clear understanding on a doctrine. Don't let confusion lead to discontent. Don't be afraid to ask. It is our noble task and our joy to teach and lead. The third tool in your CCBC Unity Maintenance Toolbox is commitment. This is our church covenant. Commitment to community is essential to maintain unity in the church. So your church covenant is the tool to place in your unity maintenance toolbox. The church covenant is that list of one another's. It's what we agree to do for one another upon our entrance into membership. It's our commitment to love one another. And in doing so, we display the power and the wisdom of God in his church. Jesus said, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. We build community and commitment to one another by serving one another. God graciously gives spiritual gifts to us that are to be used to minister to one another. We're instructed in Romans 12 to love one another with brotherly affection, to outdo one another in showing honor, to not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. I'd encourage you to be here tonight as Pastor Blake will be teaching from 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. And we can learn more about how using the gifts God has given us is a means to protect and maintain the unity in the church. I'd like to give you some ways you can apply this unity maintenance tool of commitment. In the membership classes, the expectations of membership are expressed in these six points. And I'll be brief with these. Be constant, number one, be constant in your attendance. 
Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Be under the word of God. Come together and love each other in presence. Be present. We need each other to encourage each other to remain steadfast in the faith. Number two, pray for our church daily. The best tool for that is a membership directory. If you don't have one of these, ask Jansen. He can get you one. Pray for our church daily. Go through that. Pray by name. Take a page a day, whatever, however you want to break it up. But pray through that. Please know that we as your elders, we do that. We go through this directory systematically, together, praying for you, reaching out to you, asking, how can we pray specifically for you? How can we rejoice in what God's doing in your life? How can we help you with the struggles in this life? But do that for one another. Number three, give proportionally and cheerfully. Support the ministry of the, ministry of the church by giving generously. Second Corinthians says, as each has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Number four, make it a priority of being present and prepared to partake of the Lord's Supper. Well, hey, you've got that opportunity tonight. Come back tonight. We're going to hear a great word from Pastor Blake on how to protect unity through our gifts and then partake of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a spiritually rich time in which we gather as the family of God to renew our covenant with each other and to treasure in our hearts what the Lord has done for us to unite us to himself. Number five, attend members' meetings that occur six times a year. These meetings are one of the most practical ways we as members exercise the responsibility that Jesus gave to guard the gospel and guard our gospel witness by how we receive new members, by recognizing elders and deacons, and learning about the various ministries of the church and how we can serve. And number six, serve the members of the church. That can be done through many different ways. Through discipling relationships, through small groups, through service teams, opening your homes, being hospitable. Just hanging around, either before or after our gatherings, and having meaningful conversations with each other to help one another and encourage one another in the faith. Friends, I want to tell you, I've been in Baptist churches my whole life. And I never thought I would see what God describes in His Word being lived out. And I'm so thankful. And I want to commend you and I want to affirm you and tell you that there is strong unity in this church and it's from God. 
And it's being lived out in every member of this church. It's evident in the love you have for one another. It's evident in how we care for one another. Spending time in serious matters, helping each other, coming to a pastor for counseling. It's in brothers getting up early, different days of the week, to get together and study God's Word together. It's in husbands and fathers saying, I want to shepherd my family. How can I do that? Help me. It's in sisters getting together and studying the Word together and praying for one another. The one another's are being lived out here. And I am so thankful. And it's a blessing to be affirmed as an elder in this church for which I am deeply humbled, often overwhelmed, <laughs> but so grateful. Grateful to God and His grace. So thank you. I want to finish with a, another quote from Tim Challies. He had a lot of great things to say about unity in the church. But I think this sums up and lands us well. It says, doctrine leads to love. And this really kind of combines the three tools. Doctrine leads to love for God that then overflows into love for others. 1 John 4, 8 makes it plain. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. To know God is to know love. To know God is to equip yourself to act in love. Your love for God is limited by your knowledge of Him so that you can really only love Him as far as you know Him. As the depth of your knowledge grows, so too does the depth of your love. This is why the study of doctrine cannot be the pursuit of dry facts, but facts that lead to a living knowledge of God and a growing love for God. When you know doctrine, you prepare yourself to live in ways that express love to Him and to others. Brothers and sisters, may we endeavor to grow in the knowledge of our gracious God. To love Him and others. And be eager to maintain this precious unity He has provided. So that we manifest His glory for all to behold. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you praise for the unity we have in Christ Jesus. That salvation belongs to you and you have poured out your spirit within our hearts to be united to Christ. And because we're in Christ, we're in fellowship with one another. So Father, deepen our understanding of you. Grow our knowledge of you so that we may love you more and love each other more. 
And may it glorify you in this world through your church. All praise and glory belongs to you. And we give that to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.